You are listening to the Piedmont Church Podcast. To learn more about Piedmont Church, including our gathering times in Macon, you can visit us online at piedmontchurch.net. What does it take for you to trust someone fully? Think about that for a second. What does it take for you to trust someone fully? A couple years ago, I uh, took a bunch of middle schoolers on a retreat. We went to a campground that had these high ropes course. And uh, every year you take students to a high ropes course. If you've ever done it before, you you get to quickly find out those who uh, have a fear of heights and those who do not. Uh, Those who trust uh, their leaders and uh, mechanical things like ropes and, you know, uh, belays and all those other things that happen with that. Uh, What I didn't expect was one of my leaders to freak out at the top of this high ropes course. One of my leaders is six foot seven. Uh, you'd think he'd be over fear of heights because he naturally lives in it. But he gets to the top of this ropes course uh, around about 30 middle school students and completely freaks out, shuts down, sits down, and hugs the tree and says, I'm not moving. And over the next hour, hour and a half, I felt like a fireman trying to get a cat out of a tree, trying to relay to him that he can trust the rope that he's attached to, that he can trust the system that has been engineered to hold his 6'7", 165-pound frame. And uh, he wasn't catching that. That didn't matter because all he could see and feel and in that moment grasp was that he was 20 feet in the air and it didn't matter because he was afraid. And every year I did that, and every moment I, I, I take those kids out there, I think about this six foot seven guy who just couldn't find the trust, uh, not necessarily in me, but in, in, in the circumstances he found himself in to go, you know what, I could fall off of this log that's 20 feet in the air, but I'm secured. I, I, there's nothing that's actually going to happen. I might, you know, slowly fall to the ground, and I, I guess at worst, you get a, you know, a little, you know, that, that a harness you wear, it gets a little tight. And it's uncomfortable, but you're fine. You're, you're not going to actually get hurt. And as we lean into today's topic, and we're going to walk through the genealogies. Most of us skip those when we're reading in our quiet times, and I'm going to preach through them, so stay with me, all right? But hopefully what you'll find is that God gave us these genealogies to build trust. He, he, he gave us these in His words so that we would trust Him more. I was reading a book several years ago called Canoeing the Mountain, written by a guy named Todd, Todd Bolsinger. And he, he's taking leadership principles for the church uh, and, and for leaders all across, and he's comparing them back to Lewis and Clark's adventure across this great country. And uh, the Corpse of Discovery, they're, they're going across. So as soon as the Louisiana Purchase happens, uh, Lewis and Clark are commissioned to, to go west and uh, what they believe is going to happen is they're going to get on their boats because they saw a previous journeyman do this, uh, or read, I guess I should say, about a previous journeyman do this. They, they get their canoes, and they think they're going to get to the Missouri River, and they're going to get on the river, and it's just going to kind of take them to the Pacific Ocean. But what they quickly found out is that that is not the case. They get on the Missouri River, they ride it for a good ways, and then it basically stops, and they find themselves in a place looking to the west where they see what is not the Pacific Ocean, but the Rocky Mountains. And so they had prepared this entire trip to just kind of canoe all the way to the ocean, and now they have to canoe 
the mountains. They have to take their boats and they have to cross the Rocky Mountains to then get to, I believe it's the Columbia River, which then feeds directly out to the Pacific Ocean. And one of the things that Todd said in there, talking about leadership and talking about trust ultimately, is he says this, no one is going to follow you off the map unless they trust you on the map. No one is going to trust, follow you off the map unless they trust you on the map. Essentially what he's saying is that Lewis and Clark paid dividends into the, the men and, and the women that were around them as they went on this trip. And by the time they got to the point where they were off the map and they didn't really know what they were doing, they had built in enough trust with these people that these people would trust them to go somewhere they didn't know where they were going. And I think to a degree, our faith is like that. I, I think to a degree, when God calls us out into faith, and He calls us into moments in our life where he, we need to trust what He says rather than what we see, what He is kind of hoping is that you will remember all the things that He's done for you. you, you you'll remember kind of, uh, as He talks to the Israelites over and over again, when He gives them a command, before He gives them a command, he usually reminds them, hey, remember, I am the God that led you out of Egypt. I am the God of your forefathers. I'm the God of your ancestors. And he calls them to remember the blessings that he has bestowed upon him. So as we continue in this First Chronicles series, and we're going to walk through the living history of what God has given us, we need to remember that God is ca causing us to look back to take us forward. So as we continue, if you weren't here last week, I want to give you just a little bit of context. So in, in this series, and really in this book, First Chronicles and, and Second Chronicles, it was originally one book called The Chronicles. We split it up so that we could help kind of understand a little better and, and give us some more context. And so this original audience was written to a people who had been taken captive and then freed back to their original lands. And they get back to their lands and... There is, uh, you know, building taking place. The temple is rebuilt, but it's not as nice as the original temple uh, that was torn, you know, later than torn down. And so they're kind of in a place where they're going, ah, you know, how good, is, how good can we really be? We don't have as much money as we once had. We are not the people that we once were. How can we do this? And so what God does inspired, uh, what God inspires the, the, the author to do is he has us look back in these genealogies. And here's one thing that we need to remember, because when you and I read the genealogies, there's a disconnect that happens. Because you and I, even with Ancestry.com, most of us can't really go back more than maybe three, four generations. Most of us have no idea where we come from. We know that we probably, most of us in this room, weren't born, and, and you know, our, our, our people aren't from here, maybe from across a different ocean, but you know, you, you ain't from Macon, most likely, for all of time, right? You're from somewhere else. And we don't really have this respect on ancestry and, and, and forefathers, but they did. Generations meant a lot to them. And so when God begins in this genealogy, He's giving them a kind of a definitive proof of who He is. He's kind of showing them His sovereign hand throughout history. And so we get to this place where we're opening up the genealogies, and I think sometimes we can Go to it and we can just skip it because we go, I, I can't get anything from this. But what I hope to do today and throughout this series is to un unravel the truth that, that God gave these genealogies, not just for them, but for us as well. 
Now, depending on your background, you, you may kind of look at God as someone who's far off, who uh, doesn't have the, the, the same thought process as you. He, he's disconnected. Uh, he's maybe this abstract being. Maybe he's a, he's a vengeant old man. But when the people of God gather, when the church gathers and you see us sing and you see us praise Him and cry and, and maybe even dance a little bit, you might think that the church is crazy. And maybe it's not that we're crazy. Maybe it's that we've seen a different picture of God. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Jesus Himself in John 14.9 says, If you want to see the Father, look towards me. So this morning we're going to go into this open ancient text and we're going to see the histories of the people of God and we're going to see God's faithfulness to them and and what I pray is to the world. And I pray that it brings a, a great trust in our heart. Title of my sermon if you're taking notes is God's promise is your promise. God's promise is your promise. First Chronicles chapter 9. If you'll stand in, in honor of reading God's word with me this morning. I'm just going to read uh, the, the first two verses. So all Israel was recorded in genealogies, and these are written in the book of the kings of Israel. And Judah was taken into exile in Babylon because of their breach of faith. Now the first to dwell again in their possessions in their cities were Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the temple servants. You guys can be seated. So again, this book was written previously to those who were captive. They, they were then freed to go home, about 50,000 of them. They rebuilt the temple, and, and now God has given them these nine chapters to kind of pour into them, and, and this is riveting stuff, right? So what's going to happen is, in this, if you'll flip all the way back over to that first chapter, First Chronicles chapter 1, what's, what he's going to do, if I can get there, is he begins where all good stories begin, at the beginning. The very first name, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, begins with Adam. And what's interesting to me is if you actually flip to the end of the Chronicles, so you go to Second Chronicles chapter 36, he's going to fast forward and he's going to share a decree by the king of Persia, a guy named Cyrus. And what's so interesting to me about this is that in this whole picture of the Chronicles, in 1 Chronicles 1 all the way to the end of 2 Chronicles 36, he's giving us a complete picture of the beginning of humanity to what will then soon become the rest of humanity. He's kind of giving us a picture for the entire book. Because what, what's going to happen, and we're going to read this text in just a second, 2 Chronicles 36, is that you're going to see the king of Persia, Cyrus, who was once a pagan leader, like, did not believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Did not believe in Yahweh at all. But yet, turns from his pagan gods and makes a decree on behalf of the Lord. Second Chronicles 36, verse 22 says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom. Like, think about how big that is. He makes a proclamation to all of his kingdom and put, puts it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, Yahweh, 
God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. The chronicler is revealing to the reader right here that things that you and I see as broken and unfixable, he makes whole. The answers for tomorrow are found in the answers and the ancestors' answers of yesterday. What was once perceived as a gift for just a few, what, right, what started with Adam and God's chosen people in Jerusalem, we see in Persia and Cyrus, will become soon through the blood of Jesus a gift for all. This Persian king's declaration reveals that the promise of God is alive and well. Now you may be thinking, okay, now like what promise are we talking about? Well, let's get there. So in chapter 1, the chronicler kind of begins with Adam, and he begins to give us this, this line of Adam that come from the very first man. And we work through the genealogies, and you can kind of see it. And if you go back to Genesis, you can see this happening as well. But the chronicler is just putting the names on the paper here for us. But then you get to the end of chapter 1, and what happens? God begins to unravel His truth and unravel the promise that is to become all. And He calls a man named Abram. Abram, come on down. Y'all give it up for Abram. All right, Abram. You're, you're, you're here. You've been called to leave the land of your fathers and, and, and go and trust in God. And what is God going to do in you? Go ahead. That's right. Now flip your paper over. So you're no longer Abram. You are now Abraham, right? He likes pork. Just kidding. So Abram becomes Abraham. He gives him a new name, gives him a promise. The covenant is then established in Abraham. The promise of great nations, of blessings, is coming in the line of Abraham. So what does Abraham do? He tells his wife, they're giddy, they're old. That's not a dig on James. And they're going, how is this thing going to happen? Because I don't know if this is working anymore, right? I don't know if we can make, I don't know how this is going to happen. And they wait and they wait and they wait. They eventually take the plan into their own hand and they have a kid who isn't God's plan in the sense that it's supposed to be. His name is Ishmael. And then God kind of, hey, that's not how that was supposed to work. And then the, the proclaimed son comes, Isaac, where are you at? You're in here? There you go. Come on down, Isaac. You can stand on this side over here because we're just going to line you all up. Abram's, Abraham's still alive, and here's Isaac, the son of Abraham. You know, just good dude right here. Isaac continues on. He has two kids. He's got a hairy boy. First one, Esau. He's a hunter. Some, I think his name even means like a bear or something like that because he was just a hairy guy is what we remember of him. He has the, the first son, Esau, and then he has a second one. You know, 
heel grabber, I think it was his, what his name means. Jacob, where are you at? Come on, Jacob, come on down. So, two sons. Esau wasn't necessarily the one uh, that, that we're going to continue to look at. Because why? Because Esau gives his blessing away to Jacob. Because Jacob is, you know, smart, a little crafty. And uh, I think for a bowl of soup, something like that, he says, hey, Esau, give me your namesake. And so Esau's like, dude, I'm hungry. All right, let's do this. So Jacob becomes the man. He's now the firstborn, supposedly, with all of the, the gifts. And so you have Abraham, you have Isaac, and then you have Jacob. And Jacob, who are you? Tell us about yourself. That's right. You can flip your card over. So Jacob is no longer Jacob. He is now Israel. Genesis 35 says similar things. It says, And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Je uh, Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. Now, if, if you know your Bible, be fruitful and multiply. That is a similar charge to what? You got from Adam, then you got all the way to Abraham. Now you're all the way to Israel. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will also give to you a promised land. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. So this is huge because if you're a Jewish person, what you're, what you're seeing is you're seeing the hand of God. Because you were kind of a nothing nation. God plucks you up, makes you, and then begins to bless you through your previous ancestors. And so Jacob goes, all right, cool. We're going to take the promised land. And they get in it. And right as he is about to die, his, his kind of dying breath, he gives this kind of glorious speech that you can find in Genesis chapter 49. And he takes all 12. Y'all say 12. That's right. All 12 of his boys. Come on down, 12 boys. Where are you at? All of you. Come on. Y'all just line up down here. It doesn't have to be in any special order. All 12 of you. It's like half the congregation this morning. <laughs> All 12 of the boys get a piece of the promised land. Well, sort of. Levi, where are you at? Levi, you're just such a holy man that you actually begin the priestly nation. God sets you up, uh, and you're not going to get any land. Sorry. You're going to start what's called... The Levites, the Levitical system is what's coming to you. But there's somebody else who has two sons. Where are you at? Joseph. Joseph, you have two sons. You were a great servant of God. You led the people of Egypt through a famine. You, you began to, to kind of, you know, not conquer, but lead. And they, you rose to royalty, but you were still leading so well that God blesses you with two sons. What's your two sons' names? Some with an E and an M, right? 
Yeah, those words. So you get to split, as a dad, you get to split those two and give both of your sons a piece of land. So you end up having these 12 tribes of Judah, but then you also have the Levitical system. And what you see that God has done now is with one man, Abraham, who's now dead, by the way, and Isaac's dead too, and now Israel's dead. You have these 12, actually technically what, 13, if you really didn't have the sons, 15 blessings of God that go out and they take over essentially this promised land. They begin to lead and they prosper and all that they see is the blessing of God in this moment. Y'all give it up for the 12 tribes of Judah. Y'all go sit down. Appreciate it. That's right. Keep your cards. That's who you are forever. So this is important. This is important to understand from a Jewish perspective what's happening. That God began with one promise with one man over one nation. And then He began to multiply and multiply and multiply and multiply. And so when these Jewish people come back to their homeland and they're feeling as if they don't have much, God is reminding them that what started with very little grew to very much And later, he will remind them that because they lost, when they lost things, it wasn't because God took his blessing away. It was because they made poor decisions. They didn't make the the decisions to follow after God. Did you know that there are over 3,000 promises of God in Scripture? Over 3,000. Joshua 21.45 says this about his promises. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. God has either fulfilled or will fulfill all of these promises. So what does this mean for us? As we look back on these genealogies and we we see the hand of God through the, the people of God in Israel, what does this mean for us? When we think about these promises, this is what it is. What does this mean for the people of God today? Paul says in Romans chapter 9, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but it's the children of the promise who are counted as His offspring. As the band comes up, let me unpack this. I think sometimes when we kind of read through these genealogies and we say, okay, yeah, Abraham, promise, I get it, Isaac, Jacob, and then all the 12, and you got the 15, and it's kind of confusing, and I don't get it, and I'm not a Jew, so what does all this promise mean for me? Well, here's the beauty that we see in Romans. Paul Paul writes a a glorious picture here, inspired by the Holy Spirit in this letter. It's kind of a, a theological treatise. And what he's saying is that just because you are not the flesh of Abraham's flesh doesn't mean that you are not his child. He says later in Romans chapter 11 that all those who are in Christ, meaning they've repented, meaning they've They've turned away from their sins and they've put their faith in Jesus. 
You are now grafted into the promise that you see in these histories, in the Old Testament. The promise of being fruitful and multiplying, being blessed, being a nation over other nations. That you are a promised child. You have been grafted in. And so that should give you encouragement today. That God's promise yesterday is a God's promise for you today. God promises you strength. Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. He gives you rest. Matthew 11, Then Jesus said, Come to Me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you. Let Me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. He says He's going to take care of all of our needs. Philippians 4, And this same God who takes care of Me will supply all of your needs from His glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Matthew 7, 7, he declares that our prayers are answered. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. In Romans 8, he says he works everything out for our good and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Joshua 1 5, he says, He's going to be with us. I will not fail you or abandon you. This is my command. Be strong and courageous. Verse 9, do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Psalm 91 2, he says, He's going to protect us. This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God, and I trust him. 1 John 1 9 says, He's going to give us freedom of sin. If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. John 8.36, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. When you have that separation from, from sin, there's nothing that can separate you from Him. Romans 8.38, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And then he gives us everlasting life in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I think when we look back on the genealogies, we have a tendency to skip over them and, and, and ignore the faithfulness and the fruitfulness of what God's given us in this text. But I think the reality of what He's calling you and I to do as we read through the genealogies of the history of mankind and we see the faithfulness of God as He's calling us to remember the blessings of the past so we can trust Him for the blessings in the future. Maybe all that we need to do is remember. Wherever you find yourself today, whatever struggles you find yourself in, financial, relationally, maybe it's something internally, maybe, maybe it's a stronghold in your life that you just can't seem to let go. God's calling you to remember who He is, to know that 
He has defeated death. He has defeated sin. He has broken the strongholds of this world. And all you need to do is come to Him. Turn from your sin. Turn from your brokenness. Sin sin, sin is this word that, that, that basically says we've missed the mark. So God set a mark of holiness. It's kind of like an arrow, right? He's put it back, and we've missed it. And it could just be done there. The story could be over. But no, He sent His Son who hit the mark, lived a perfect life, and then died on the cross. But three days later, rose, resurrected, rose again, defeated death, defeated sin, and now says, you were not victorious before me, but in me you will be. So when you find yourself in, in the depths of despair, in the struggle, know that all you need to do, Jesus says in Romans, to be more than a conqueror is to come to Him. And so maybe all we need to do this morning is remember that His promises are good. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And maybe all we need to do to remember that is to look to the genealogies. Let's pray. Lord, as we reflect on Your history, on who You have us to be, today, as we are defined by the past, God, I, I, I pray that we won't just neglect parts of Your Scripture because it doesn't hit us the same way we want it to. Thank You for giving us the ability to dive deep and understand what all of this means, even though we're in a different culture, we're in a different time period. Lord, allow us to recognize the promises and the, the faithfulness that You've shown us in the past so that we can move in the future and step with You. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in here this morning that is saying, you know, I, I, I don't, I've never seen God's faithfulness. My family was this. My, my story is that. It's, it's complete and total brokenness. Well, I, I pray like Saul, you'll, you'll remove the scales from our eyes. You'll open up our hearts. And you'll allow us to see your sovereign goodness throughout every step. That you'll change our perspective. That we'll see things in light of eternity. We'll see things in the light of who you are and who you've destined us to be. Move in our hearts. Allow us to worship you in full surrender to receive the promises that you have for us. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.